A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. few things that we're going to talk about today are going to start with, I think, the Central Bank of Ireland's new economic forecasts. I haven't had a chance to read them in any detail. I suspect nobody has yet because they are just hot off the press. But they look, on the face of it, to be quite optimistic. And immediate question comes to mind is, well, what energy price assumption did they embody? And until we can find that out, uh, I think the question is a bit moot as to whether they're too optimistic on the basis of what energy prices are doing. Because even this morning, uh, as we speak, uh, relative to their close yesterday, gas prices in Europe are up another 15 to 20 percent. And they've already been going gangbusters for a long time. That's the spot price, of course which is really the price that industry pays rather than consumers. But it seems to be translating into consumer prices as well. There's talk that energy bills in the UK over the next few months are going to go up by around a third. That's a lot for energy, for paying to heat your home. If that comes over to Ireland, Jim, I wonder what that's going to mean for the central bank's forecasts. So let's start there. What did you make of them? Uh, It's an incredibly upbeat assessment of the economy. Um, they're talking about 160,000 new jobs over the next two years, the unemployment rate falling to 5.9% of the labour force by um, 2023. They're talking about GDP growth of 15.3% this year, slightly lower than the, cent- than the Department of Finance was forecasting last week, but still very high and 7.2% GDP growth next year. Um, and really, the basis for a lot of this is the post-COVID rebound, 
a particularly very strong consumer spending, uh, the 16 billion in excess household savings that occurred during COVID, you know, coming back into the system. Um, and they're basically saying that domestic activity, that's, you know, modified domestic demand, the real economy stripping out the um, multinational distortions uh, that they say that pre-pandemic levels of growth of activity will be seen this year and that by 2023 we'll be back to where we would have been if the pandemic had not happened. Um, they're talking about the construction sector delivering 31,000 new houses in 2023, which would be an amazing performance given where we've come from. Um, in response to your issue about what energy prices they are building into these forecasts uh, excuse me from what i've seen it's hard to know i mean they make warnings about the dangers from higher costs and prices um and they 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 mention energy all of this driven by pent-up demand supply bottlenecks and so on but despite those warnings it's an incredibly upbeat assessment of the irish economy over the next couple of years and to be honest, I don't think it takes proper cognizance of the external environment that's evolving at the moment, particularly the gas situation that you mentioned, because that will um, materialize in this country as well. You know, it's all, it's already impacting and will impact further. So um, while it's very, very upbeat, uh, certainly uh, I think I'd be a little bit more cautious. Yeah, it seems to me that the, the another central bank like like all of the others that we know, expecting the inflation shock to be transitory. And um, it seems to me to be a rather long-lived transitory inflation shock, um, particularly for energy prices. Not just gas prices up today, Jim, because we know that the oil price is going up as well. And the last time around I talked about the oil equivalent of gas, what would oil prices have to be to make the two markets in equilibrium the way the technicians seem to be able to calculate these things. And at the moment, the gas price is saying that the oil price should be over $200 a barrel. And that's quite extraordinary. You've written more about the Irish economy in, a, in an update for our Substack website, published yesterday or the day before, I think, and in which you talked about the National Development Plan, which obviously is an input into something like the CBI's forecast. One assumes that that level of capital spending in that plan is an important part of that growth outlook. And you've also talked about the latest exchequer returns. Just take us through those two pieces of data that have come out recently, Jim. Okay, um, th there is a, a an ongoing government strategy called Project 2040, okay? And as part of this, there is the National Development Plan built in. And um, the this week, the government published the latest update or the latest iteration of the National Development Plan. Um, it's to cover the period from 2021 to 2030. It involves 165 billion in government spending between 2021 and 2030, mainly on um, sort of capital spending. And um, they, they cover, you know, a number of areas. One is um, compact growth and compact growth tries to describe um, basically 50% of the houses that would be delivered in that period will be in the six largest cities. So in other words, um, th that they are trying to centralize living 
in the major urban areas and the other 50% then would be in towns, villages and, you know, rural areas. Um, the second part of it is um, what they call regional accessibility. You know, that involves um, a number of road upgrades, um, investing in interregional bus services. And um, I, I guess the most controversial uh, road project in there is the M20 proposed motorway from Cork to Limerick. Um, that has attracted a, a lot of criticism in some parts because, you know, there's a some people believe that um, a motorway is not required, that um, a dual carriageway would be more appropriate. But um, for anybody who's ever travelled the Cork to Limerick road, particularly during peak time, um, I think certainly something needs to be done. So a lot of stuff there on um, roads and public transport and so on. Um, there's a focus on rural communities and rural economies, as they call it. So key part of this would be the National Broadband Plan, um, the promotion of and incentivization of remote working. And um, also, you know, trying to create a more regionally connected bus program. They're talking about sustainable mobility. Um, that is basically trying to look at a more sustain environmentally sustainable public transport system. So Bus Connects, um, which is a very controversial topic here in Dublin, certainly, where they are turning a lot of, um, well, they propose turning a lot of roads, access points into Dublin, into bus corridors, basically. And where I live here is creating enormous controversy because um, a lot of roads will be turned into rat runs, um, getting into Terenure Village, for example, where I live, will become really difficult for a motorist. And, um, you know, obviously the traders in the village are very worried about this. So, but anyway, this Bus Connects thing, despite all its justifiable flaws or justified flaws, excuse me, um, is, is part of it. Uh, there is a focus on what they call enterprise innovation and skills um, you know, that involves investment in technological universities, um, digital transformation, all that good stuff. Um, they talk about international connectivity. So a second runway at Dublin Airport, investment in the ports of Dublin, Cork and Shannon Fines. Um, I know you'll be very unhappy to think that they're going to invest in Dublin Port out to 2030. But anyway, that that's for another day. Um, there is obviously a lot in there about climate action. You know, they're talking about retrofitting 500,000 homes. Um, uh, they're talking about the Celtic interconnector. Um, there's a lot of stuff in there on water and environmental resources and then childcare, education and health services. So there's a, there's a, a lot in there. And um, how does one respond to it? Well, um, I guess I'm a little bit confused about this latest iteration because you know, it's like housing every so often they turn around and give us uh, the latest update on these things. There's a lot of vagueness in there. And, and I guess you can justify that vagueness because, you know, one of the things, a lot of money is going to be spent, $165 billion, But um, inflation in the construction sector is running rampant at the moment. So will it be possible to deliver all this in that sort of environment. So th there is obviously vagueness. But the other thing that
that I think is very significant. There is a public spending code here uh, that is meant to determine a capital investment spending, particularly, you know, it's basically a cost benefit analysis to make sure that the taxpayer is getting value for money. But one of the changes they've built into this public spending code um, an environmental assessment. So in other words, they will be trying to price the emissions impact of any of these developments and they will be built into the cost part of the equation. And also, for example, in a roads project that they will build in as part of the cost benefit, the obviously the cost of delivering the road, the, mater- the materials, etc. But they will also try to measure the emissions generated during that construction phase. And also, and this is where it becomes really interesting, they're trying to um, cost the emissions that these new roads will cause to true extra traffic over the coming years. So basically what that means is that they are really trying to um, climate change proof all of these spending plans. And um, as a consequence of that, Many of these projects actually on a cost benefit or value for money basis might not ever get over the line. And that's why, for example, on the Cork to Limerick uh, road upgrade, the date of commencement is to be confirmed. OK, so there's a lot of stuff like that in there. But, you know, so it's it's, it's there's a lot in there. As I say, um, my I, I guess I hope most of it is delivered. Um, I hope the government becomes better or the, the, the yeah the government becomes better at delivering these sorts of capital investment projects and you'd have to say if all of these issues that are addressed in this national development plan were to be delivered or were to be in significant progress by 2030 um, I think it would make a significant improvement to the quality of life here would enhance our economic growth potential uh, so time will tell do you think the money is there, Jim, to be spent in, in, from a strictly financial point of view? It's a, it's a lot of money uh, to be spent. I guess a, an economist like ourselves would say that um, money should always be for, there for investment because provided the return is sufficiently high, then you can justify borrow, uh, borrowing the money, even if you aren't raising it in taxation. So I guess that's my foot. Do you get a sense, Jim, that they plan to borrow this money or is, it, is the financing coming from taxation or is it a bit of both? Um, I think it'd be primarily borrowed, to be honest. Um, and do you, you think know, it makes sense to borrow? Do you think the return will be sufficient? Such well, that it's, it's um, okay, it's, it's equivalent roughly to just under 50% of what our GDP would be at the moment, a little bit less than that. So it is... Over a, 10 years. Yeah, that's over 10 years, but I'm saying nearly 50% of this year's GDP will be spent over the next 10 years. So it is a significant amount of money. Um, it, it, it would represent definitely record levels of capital spending. Um, I, I guess there's, there's a number of ways of looking at this. You know, some would argue that in an environment of historically low bond yields, now is the time to borrow, um, particularly for capital investment purposes. But I guess the note of caution there is that um, this very low cost of borrowing um, ain't going to last forever. And we're already seeing some upward pressure on bond yields. Uh, so the cost of borrowing is starting to go up. And by the time, you know, this money is being borrowed, um, you know, God only knows where bond yields there will be. So th- that's one of the risk factors. And I guess the other risk factor is um, 
here in this country over the years, there's always been a huge focus from government on the quantity rather than the quality of spending. Um, you know, they cite figures, we've spent an extra three billion on health or whatever, or roads, but they never assess the quality of that spending. Because I think, as you would agree with me, I hope that there is good capital spending and there is bad capital spending. So I think that we need to be really, really careful to make sure that if that 165 billion is going to be spent out to 2030, that it is spent in the right areas, that it is spent correctly, and that value for money and the return on investment, you know, have to be key parts of the equation. Um, having said that, you know, it's really difficult to measure the return on investment in a lot of these projects because, you know, they may not give directly a financial return, which many won't, but they will enhance the quality of life. They will um, make Ireland a more attractive location for foreign direct investment because one of the things that, uh, as you know, is going down this week is that we are on the brink of this OECD-driven tax deal. And uh, the sense is that a minimum corporation tax rate of 15% is going to be agreed on and the Irish government will sign up to that. So with our tax advantage for foreign direct investment being I would say modestly eroded rather than significantly eroded. Um, we need to make sure that all of these other areas that make Ireland an attractive place for investment are as high quality as possible. And I think the 165 billion certainly uh, would go some way towards ensuring that. So it, it remains to be seen, Chris, to be honest. Yeah, it's hard to know uh, in advance because we've seen plans like this come and go in the past and some things get delivered some things don't and uh it's in the nature of planning i guess but let you you mentioned the corporation tax potential changes there in the context of being able to afford stuff uh you also talked about this week on on our substack site about the exchequer returns in which the corporation tax were once again very healthy i believe is that right yeah that's correct um the first nine months of the year 6.2 billion deficit, which is significantly lower than would have been expected. And the story here is that, and this is a story that we've spoken about month after month when we're discussing the exchequer returns, tax revenue buoyancy is incredibly strong. Uh, we collected almost 46 billion. That's almost 16% ahead of last year. And within that, income tax is going gangbusters, 18.4 billion, up 19.5% on the same period last year. The VAT take at 12.4 billion is up 26%. That reflects the strong rebound in consumer spending and particularly the 19% growth we've seen in new car sales so far this year because uh, you know the motor industry does make a very significant contribution to VAT and VRT um, receipts. So that's very strong. And then the third bit, we've collected just over 8 billion in corporation tax that's up 7.9% on the same period last year. Um, we collected a record level of 11.8 billion last year. Um, it certainly would appear, unless there's some major calamity that I cannot envisage over the remainder of the year, um, we're going to set a new corporation tax record this year. I think it will be significantly higher 
than the 11.8 billion that was collected last year. And corporation tax is now accounting for 17.6% of the total tax take. So corporation tax has become an increasingly important part of our tax take. And Chris, this is something that you have alluded to consistently over recent months, that the tech boom and the boom in tech profits, you know, would ultimately result in significant buoyancy in Irish corporation tax. And that is exactly what is happening. A couple of things flow from that. First of all, thanks for the credit for that forecast. Um, the, it's, it's not automatic that the tech profits, of course, will flow uh, directly to to Ireland because in some ways the whole tax debate is happening because companies get to choose where they pay taxes so if these companies decided as some of them clearly are to pay more tax in the United States then that would actually reduce the Irish tax take no matter what the profitability of these companies had done in the interim so there are swings and roundabouts but 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 thanks for thanks for the credit the the other thing I'd say is that we don't know how these figures are going to be impacted in the future by these OECD-driven tax changes. And even if it comes through as expected with a 15% tax rate as opposed to the current 125 plus the couple of other things that they've done, the only guess that I've seen out there is the Department of Finance saying that that could cost around $2 billion. There are other things going on, of course, that could make things worse or indeed better. But on the worst side, there's a lot of stuff going through the US Congress and, you know, there's a lot of water to flow to that bridge over the next few months, if not the next year or two, uh, which could have an impact. So that, that that needs close watching. That's both linked to what's going on at the OECD level and is quite independent of it in some ways. I suppose my simple point, my simple question to you, Jim, is that if the Department of Finance is worried about two billion or so disappearing, that's clearly a large sum of money and would be a, a serious concern. Uh, how, how risky do you think it is, is my first question, that it could be significantly more than that? And I suspect the answer is we don't know, but I'll let you answer for yourself. And the second thing is, if two billion is a realistic estimate rather than just a stab in the dark, and we're already a billion or so over forecast for tax revenues this year, uh, so we were worried about two billion disappearing, one billion in an unexpected way has appeared. Um, now, in my book, we're now starting to talk about, in the context of the Irish budget, relatively small amounts of money at risk because of the the, the base effect, if you like, of, of the buoyancy of these revenues means that if we do lose two billion over the next few years, um, it ain't going to be that big a deal if the buoyancy is, is, is continuing. Just to give you an idea of how complicated this is, I know you know this, but just to give our listeners, our non-financial listeners, an idea of how complicated it is, there are suggestions that one of the reasons why tax revenues, corporation tax revenues are so buoyant in Ireland at the moment is that the companies themselves, aware that the tax rate is likely to go up from 12.5 to 15, are trying to bring future revenues into today via some interesting accountancy practices. In other words, booking future revenues as happening in the current financial year or the, the year just passed to take advantage of 12.5% rather than future 15% taxes. Now, I'm not an accountant and I know, but I do know that these sorts of things with some sorts of products and particularly services can be done. But I would certainly think that um, a decent auditor would have something to say about this. So anyway, it's complicated, Jim. Do you think that the hit is going to be a lot bigger than they're saying? And if so... What are the risks? 
Uh, it's interesting, Chris, uh, what you're describing there about um, bringing forward um, future profits into this year. Um, I guess in economic theory, that would be an outward shift in the supply curve. Um, if you want to call corporation taxes a supply side issue, but uh, it's, it's, it's interesting if that is happening. Uh, Two billion, if that's what it turns out to be, is totally manageable. You know, it will be absorbed, I think, very, very easily. Uh, the problem is, though, we don't know because, um, you know, we haven't seen the detail yet. And I think rather than the minimum corporation tax rate of 15%, a bigger issue will be changes to the way in which tax is paid. In other words, this move to make sure that corporations pay more tax in the jurisdiction where the economic activity occurs rather than where the balance sheet resides. That's a big potential problem for Ireland. Um, I, I, I think there, there's no doubt whatsoever about that. Uh, but, you know, to, if it were two billion, that would be manageable. So looking at the Irish public finances and the sustainability of the finances, you know, I have described an incredibly strong revenue side of the government balance sheet. The deterioration in the public finances over the last 18 months has actually been due to a significant increase in spending. Um, and that spending has been on social protection and health. And it continues unabated this year. Um, in the first nine months, we spent $23.1 billion on social protection, accounting for over 41% of total spending. And health, then the second highest at $14.6 billion, accounting for 26%. So there's a lot of pressure on the spending side. Um, some of the well, a lot of that was obviously COVID related. But as you know, that once committed to, it is very difficult to roll back on spending. So I think that's going to be the real challenge for the government. It is to control the expenditure side of the balance sheet um, rather than the revenue side. I think the revenue side is going to look after itself. And uh, as 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 we've said, two billion, if that's what the ultimate annual cost of these tax changes are, you know, is not going to be the end of the world. Um, my, my final point, I think, would be that um, notwithstanding just how buoyant the exchequer finances were in the first nine months of the year, I certainly hope that those who are actually preparing the budget at the moment do not get a sense of intoxication from this tax revenue buoyancy and go for a very expansionary budget on the 12th of October um, I think that would be a significant mistake. So I hope they adopt a pretty cautious approach to uh, budgetary strategy next Tuesday. If this were to continue over the next year or two, Jim, and I suppose we'd all hope that uh, this revenue buoyancy in particular continues and is not threatened by a global economic slowdown, as I worry that it will be. But let's just for a second perform the thought experiment that uh, the energy shock turns out to be quite mild. Global growth continues few bumps along the road, but basically the, these forecasts that we spoke about at the top of the show from the central bank turn out to be right. There's lots of jobs, there's lots of income tax, there's lots of corporation tax, the hit isn't too big. And the exchequer position is actually quite good this year, next year, and the year after. And as we get into that future budgetary position, we're now thinking about the political cycle as we get closer to a general election. What do you think they'll be doing in budget 2023, 2024, if they're getting all of this revenue buoyancy is is sustained. Well, 
Chris, to be honest, I think the battlefield is housing. Um, so rather than significant tax cuts um, or significant increases in expenditure elsewhere, I think um, from a political economy perspective, the focus has got to be on housing. The last election was, I think the, election, the next election will be more so fought on the housing battleground. So really, they need to try and go gangbusters for delivering as much housing as possible, as quickly as possible. Obviously, there are serious constraints to that because of the capacity of the construction industry. But housing is where it's at. And I, and I hope if they're politically sensible about this, that is where they will focus their attention rather than a sort of a populist uh, tax cutting strategy. But if we are, let's say, two years down the road, when is the next election due, Jim? But what's the latest it, it has to be? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's a five-year cycle. So the last one was February 20. So I, I guess it can conceivably go, it, it can go to February 2025. I don't think it will. I, I would say a year earlier. I'd say the government will last four years. So, okay. Uh, so they still got a while to go. And I was going to start talking about the long lead times. A couple of years, even, yeah. That even with, you know, if there was capacity in the construction sector, uh, that, you know, you, you don't build a house overnight and that there are quite long lead times. Uh, and I suspect those lead times are longer than ever. But really, it's it's now, isn't it? Now, <clears throat> excuse me, now in the next budget, they, they that word that you use, gangbusters, that's when they're really going to have to pull that house building lever. Uh, I suspect that because of those lead times, because the outcome of the housing is not going to stop Sinn Féin at least saying that Ireland has a housing problem and the well, actually saying that Ireland has a housing crisis, that rhetoric is not going to disappear because of whatever the government does with its house building programme. Uh, it would have to be quite a remarkably successful programme this side of the next election to, to silence that rhetoric, to silence that narrative, if you like, that the political opposition is weaving about the government uh i would i, I wouldn't bet against cut, tax cuts actually yeah uh tell me chris is it naive to sort of think that the if over the next couple of years they manage the economy in a steady way that they keep control of the public finances that they don't uh, start adopting a very pro-cyclical populist type of fiscal policy that actually the electorate would reward that and would appreciate that actually this government has been delivering a pretty decent economy. So let's give it another chance. I mean, is, well, is that naive? It depends whether you think, <clears throat> excuse me, the old political rules still apply. And in the past, the <clears throat> the economy in many countries was managed precisely with that belief in mind. It was called the, the political business cycle. And the way in which you won elections was to generate lots of income and jobs for people. And that was the way that you retained power. Uh, and that was true to a large extent. In some ways, the uh, it, it's not as simple as that now. And that this populism that we've seen, particularly in the UK and the United States, whereas it used to be said it's the economy stupid, uh, it's a lot of other things. And in the UK, what really wasn't the economy that it wasn't the economy at all that won Johnson the election because everybody was told that uh, um, Brexit would harm the economy, and Johnson and Co said that Brexit's nothing to do with the economy; it's got everything to do with sovereignty and yada yada yada, all that stuff that they went on about in terms of 
identity politics and freeing ourselves from the yoke of Brussels. And so people will vote, uh, certainly in the UK, against their economic self-interest if you appeal enough to their sense of identity, sense of emotion, all that other more touchy-feely stuff. What do you make of Boris's new economic orthodoxy? You're a big fan, I presume. How long have you got, Jim? We've only got a few minutes left, so I'll start today and maybe finish on the next podcast. It's economically illiterate. So for those people who haven't quite paid attention, and I would advise not paying attention to British politics at the moment, uh, Johnson has decided that the vote to leave the European Union was in fact a vote to uh, change Britain's economic model and the old model of, in his words, low low productivity, low wages. Uh, Brexit was about changing that to high productivity and high wages. And so it is the time has come for him to, live, to deliver it. Now, during that Brexit campaign, nobody talked about Britain's economic model being turned on its head. Um, first of all, that description of the British economy prior to Brexit is, is, uh, has only a kernel of truth in it. There were large sectors of the economy that, that were low wages, absolutely. And Britain has had a productivity problem for a very long time. But to blame it on membership of the European Union is ludicrous. It just isn't correct. And if you look at uh, Germany, which has a, a high pro- very high productivity economy, both in absolute terms and certainly relative to anything the UK does, uh, and high immigration, uh, and all the other things. So it's quite possible uh, Germany and other economies in Europe, can you can be very high productivity, high wage if you want to be. And there are lots of reasons why you can have a high productivity economy and there's lots of reasons why you don't. I had my first ever job in economics as a professional economist was actually 40 years ago, this, this summer just gone, in which I was employed by the then Department of UK Department of Trade and Industry to do research into you'll never believe it, Britain's productivity slowdown. And so Britain had only been a member of the EU back then, or the EEC it was, for about seven or eight years, and certainly it had nothing to do with it because it had been going on for a long time. And it was a global phenomenon, not just UK, but the UK was um, particularly bad. And productivity is one of those things that mystifies economists in many ways. Without productivity, you don't get economic growth. One of the statistics I like to quote about the mysteries of growth and productivity growth in particular is that if you took um, just prior to the Industrial Revolution in the UK, uh, going back to sort of the conversation we had with Duncan Weldon the other week, if you took you, you're back in the sort of mid 1700s in Britain and indeed anywhere in the world, and you looked at the living standards, income per head of the average Brit, of the average American actually, of the average Irish person, they would have been unchanged over 2,000 years, going back to before the time of Christ, living standards had gone up and down, but we lived in a very Malthusian world, is that when they did go up, population increased to reduce them again. And then what came along was the Industrial Revolution, and we still debate, as we did with Duncan, and he did in his book, the causes of the Industrial Revolution. A lot of it was serendipity, pure chance and circumstance, but it was all down to technological innovation at the end of the day, using machines better, getting more Uh, output with the same or less inputs we partly understand it it's still a bit of a mystery but the idea again that it's all down to the eu is is, it 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 really pains me to even suggest that that to put that into words because it's just so ludicrous (coughs) excuse me again 
Johnson wants to transform the UK economy <clears throat> and he's not going to do it because he believes that the way in which you do it is to leave the EU and stop immigration and sit back and wait for the sunny uplands to arrive via higher productivity and um, higher wage growth. It won't happen. Uh, productivity is an emergent process that has all sorts of drivers, not least management. I just cite one here. I could go on and on through the list, but just one. And one, one of the things that many studies over many years have shown is that British management is, on average, crap relative to their international peers. One of the reasons why they've got so many low productivity, poorly performing firms in the UK, lots of reasons, but up there near the top is how poor the quality of British management is. Now, I don't know what leaving the EU is going to do for that, but I can't see it improving it and so on with so many other factors. So I think it's just classic Johnson bluster, but in two ways at least, it's not quite as classic as it used to be. Because the first thing that I think is interesting is that it almost amounts to an ideology. It also amounts to a belief system, which is what the Conservative Party is not supposed to have. They're supposed to be pragmatic, just dealing with the way things are, getting on with it, being popular. This sounds quite, has ideological overtones to me. It's sort of a, I wouldn't call, even call it Thatcherism light, because that, that would be to dignify it with, with far too much gravitas. But it's a sort of a Neanderthal Thatcherism, if you like. And ludicrous though it is, uh, it, 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 it's, it smacks of ideology. And that's not what the Conservatives, the Tories don't like ideology. That's, what something, that's something that Labour, Labour does. The second thing it does, which is very uncharacteristically, very uncharacteristic of Johnson, is that it actually sets up concrete targets. Now, he's a, he's a bluff and bluster man, we know, and he waffles on about this, that, and the other. Well, you can never pin him down, like it, like trying to pin some jelly to the wall. But on this, there's going to be hard numbers. Going into the next election, we'll know whether real incomes and productivity have increased on his watch. Now, of course, the riposte to that will be that even if real incomes and productivity don't increase on his watch, as I would say that they won't, he will say they will. Johnson is quite capable of arguing with data and with numbers and with facts and producing his own. And if he doesn't do that, he'll simply say, well, it's all down to something that was happening in China or with global affairs. And if only you stay the course with me, vote me in again, I will deliver these sunny uplands. <coughs> Excuse me. So we will see how it goes, Jim. Okay. Interesting. Okay, Chris, uh, thank you very much. Uh, mind that cold. Cheers. Thanks, Jim. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.